Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Clean Tech, a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less. Today is Friday, December 15th, 2023. I'm Renewable Energy World Editor-in-Chief John Ingle. Maddie Stone from Grist will be joining us shortly, but for now, I'm joined once again by Clean Tech PR veteran Santa Claus. Hi, Santa. I'm a, I'm a Christmas elf, dude. Get it right. You uh, That checks out, actually. I'm, I'm putting the whole puzzle together. <laughs> I'm, a little t- I'm a little taller. How are you, Mike? Good to see good. you. And for those for those listening to the audio podcast, pop over to the YouTube for this one. It's, it's worth it. It's worth it. Mike is in the holiday spirit. Now, listen, I told you last week, my wife was like, no, no, hold off on the Christmas hat yeah. until next week. And then, but you punked out on me. So I'm, no, you, you, you stood told me, up. me, my kid brought home RSV and gave me the plague. So he's fine. I'm currently going through it. So that's, that's the the gift that I get this holiday season for you know, helping bring a life into this world. But I guess that's the way it goes, isn't it? Yeah, right. All right. So we want to thank our listeners each week for sending in those story recommendations as well as nominations for this uh, the Clean Techer of the Week. So you can send those to rew at clarionevents.com, and we'll have that link in the episode description as well. All right, Mike, let's get into it. What's our first story? All right, we have our first story is written by Nina Farah from ENA News. It's titled Transmission Rulings Pave a Path for Renewable Energy. John, your thoughts? Yeah, the Supreme Court declined to hear Texas's defense of its right of first refusal law. So that means uh, they grant existing utilities priority in building transmission lines. This law would lead to utility dominance in constructing transmission projects, limiting competition, and decreasing incentives for innovation and cost reduction. The Biden administration, to its credit, wants to see new transmission lines to increase clean energy access, but they're but these sort of right of first refusal laws may restrict entry for other innovative players. Mike, what do you think? You know, historians have said Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires, a place where big efforts go to try mightily and fail. I think as the fate of Clean Line Energy Partners tells us, uh, long-range transmission is potentially the Afghanistan of the energy transition. Mm-hmm. You know, American governance is heavily based on local say-so, and that's a good thing, and that's the way we've wanted it for the last 200-plus years, but it makes building really big interstate infrastructure super hard, especially in a polarized era where the fossil fuel lobby is weaponizing local control to stop clean energy. It's really hard to see how the energy transition works without us building um, long-range transmission. So we're going to have to do this. But um, you know, we have to keep in mind that the but Princeton Zero Lab has said that if you don't build long-range transmission, about 80% of the pollution reduction potential of the IRA is missed. 
So John, and I, I, ha- I have one other, other thought on that, Mike, and it's another court case. I think if I'm remembering correctly, it was out of Pennsylvania that uh, a, a state court judge essentially said that um, if a project is found to benefit the broader, broader RTO region, so uh, PJM in, in that example, a, a project cannot be rejected just so that a utility can incentivize, you know, local transmission builder, local infrastructure investment. So I, I do think we're getting a few court re- rulings here and there, coupled with um, a FERC, you know, lineup that wants to see more transmission get built, that we might be getting some extra juice here. So I'm, I'm hopeful there for transmission. Our second story is written by David Shepardson from Reuters titled, Tesla recalls nearly all vehicles on U.S. roads over lack of autopilot safeguards. Mike, what's going on here? Uh, the clean checker in me wants Tesla to succeed because we need EVs to scale. But I must admit, as a human, um, I a little bit of me gloats inside when Elon Musk runs into any type of trouble. Uh, you have over 2 million vehicles recalled here after federal officials found that the autopilot increases the risk of crashing because it doesn't adequately ensure drivers are paying attention. The good news here, if there is some, is that this problem can be fixed with a software update. We will note the company disagrees with this claim that it plans a software update anyway, and it will make it more obvious to drivers that they need to take over. John, what do you think? Yeah, tough week for Tesla. They also just learned many of their cars will not be eligible for IRA tax credits up to $7,500. This investigation found 322 autopilot-related crashes out of a total of 956 uh, that were reviewed. And this follows a Washington Post story this week that found eight fatal or serious Tesla crashes happened when autopilot was activated on roads it's not suited for. So some obviously argue that drivers should know better when to use autopilot, when to not. Others want Teslas to to proactively tell them when to disengage autopilot. Hopefully this software update is a good step in the right direction. Mike, what's our third story? We have one from Will Wade at Bloomberg entitled Solar and Wind to Top Coal Power in the U.S. for the first time in 2024. John, what do you think? Yeah, we're on track to see coal produce about 600 billion kilowatt hours in 2024, according to government data released on Tuesday. Meanwhile, wind and solar will supply a combined 688 billion kilowatt hours. This is the culmination of a decade-long trend. Wind and solar have been steadily growing as a share of the mix. At the same time, coal has been on a precipitous decline, largely driven by competition from cheap gas and, and obviously the influx of renewables. Mike, what did you think? You know, I'm old enough to remember when coal was 50% of this country's power generation. You're old enough to remember when we discovered coal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I love doing this with you, Mike. I just had to, I had to break, I had to break character there for a second because it was just too easy. You know, the AARP legal team is going to be paying, is going to be serving you papers at your house, John, for your unrelenting ageism on this show. But fine, I'm going to just stick to the facts here. In 2024, coal will be down 10% from this year, solar and wind up 15%. Uh, we spent a lot of time, uh, frankly, looking at the challenges and hindering the energy transition. But, you know, it's important to take the wins when you get them. And I'm going to be popping some champagne corks here when we uh, pass this threshold. John, what's your what's our fourth story? Yeah, there are probably some people out there that don't like that bit that we do, but or that I do, but I, I so enjoy it, Mike. Um, all right. Fourth story comes from the Wall Street Journal. A few uh, authors attached to that one. Nations at COP28 agree for first time to transition from fossil fuels. Say it ain't so, Mike. 
Well, let's let's be clear. It took the world's officialdom 28 years, count it, 28 years to come together and say, we're going to transition away from fossil fuels, not phase them out. We're going to transition them. So, hey, look, I, I think that there is a lot of positive signaling here. There is, of course, no binding action. But I think that if there's power, if there's global power in aspirational agreement, then this is a win. If you're looking for this to drive real change because it it binds countries to do things, you will be sorely disappointed. But this is, I think, a pretty big deal given the power of the fossil fuel lobby at the global level. I've been to the fir- to the, some of the early cops. They are just loaded with lobbyists from uh, the big oil companies. And so I think you, you have to give some credit to this process for producing this consensus. John, what do you think? Question for you, your overall take on cops. Good, bad, waste of time, a lot of hot air, progress. Oof. Where do you land? You know, I used to think they were like campus politics, never had so many fought so hard for so long over so little. I I think that there is there is utility in the signaling that comes from the international consensus that they produce. But I should note that the science, the climatological agreement here has been firm, clear, and alarming for about 10 years, and that has not stopped a lot of fossil fuel bros on LinkedIn from totally ignoring it and thinking they know the science better. So I think there's some value. Is is there enough ROI to justify them? I I don't know, John. I just, I, I got to tell you, I, I'm still conflicted on this one. Yeah. I think me too. I like how you said that. Mike, do you want to welcome our guest and usher in our fifth story here? And John, our last story is written by Maddie Stone from Grist. It's titled EV Battery Repair is Dangerous. Here's why mechanics want to do it anyway. Welcome to the show, Maddie Stone. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right. So if our listeners and readers have not read it yet, what's the big takeaway from this story? Yeah, big takeaway from this story is that there's this emerging industry of EV battery repair, and there's a lot of reasons we might want to repair EV batteries, but there's also a lot of hurdles. So when we think about uh, EV batteries and battery sustainability, there's kind of been this big ongoing conversation about mining and resources and where we're going to get all the metals for these batteries and the conditions in the mines and sort of the emissions associated with that. It's been one of the big concerns for EV battery sustainability. And if we really do want these batteries to be as sustainable as possible and for electric vehicles to be as sustainable as possible, we really need to use them as long as possible. And, um, a key strategy for doing that is actually repairing batteries when something goes wrong with them. So, you know, we can think about the tail end of battery sustainability as being recycling the minerals back out at the end of their life, getting the lithium and cobalt and nickel back. But um, before we even get to that, we want to see if those batteries can be repaired because, of course, that helps us save resources, save carbon emissions associated with battery manufacturing, and it keeps vehicles on the road and it can save consumers money. And so there's a lot of reasons to do battery repair. It's a very small and emerging industry right now, and there's a lot of challenges for the independent mechanics in particular who want to try to repair EV batteries. Everything from safety challenges to a lack of information to, in some cases, uh, the way the batteries are designed, which makes them very difficult to open up and fix. Maddie, I found your story really interesting, especially since we had Shannon Osaka from the Washington Post on recently talking about 
um, dealer reluctance to one sell EVs and two service them, and how that could be a major barrier to the electric vehicle transition. You did highlight a few um, businesses, entrepreneurs around the country that are trying to tap into this opportunity, and, and you just alluded to it a bit. But can you talk about the barrier to entry here? And, and how this dynamic could impact what we're all so familiar with is like the mom and pop shop down the street that we've been going to for decades. Yeah, of course. And so um, as listeners probably know, when you want to get your car fixed, you have a few options. You can take it back to the dealership or you can go to, as you say, one of those mom and pop mechanics. You might have one that you have a good relationship with or you really trust. And so um, we're hoping that as more and more consumers adopt EVs, there's si- sort of that similar um, availability of choice in the market. Um, you have dealers on the one hand and you have independent mechanics on the other hand. When it comes to EV batteries, um, I would say EVs in general and batteries in particular, there's sort of a lack of information out there right now and a lack of training. Um, and this makes it particularly challenging for independent mechanics to get into the EV battery repair space, especially because there's a lot of uh, safety training that's required and a lot of safety considerations. At the same time, the sense I got reporting this story out is there isn't widespread knowledge among the dealers either as to how to repair these Mm. batteries. Um, So in the United States, Mm. when an EV comes back to a dealership and there's a problem with the battery, um, it might be that the dealer actually outsources the, the repair or the testing of the battery and the decision about whether it can be repaired or refurbished or simply needs to be replaced to a third-party company that's contracted with manufacturers that specializes in battery repair. And so that seems to be working for now, um, but there's not that many EVs on the roads yet compared with where we expect to be in five or 10 years. And so um, it's, you know, it remains to be seen whether more dealers will become trained in battery repair and whether manufacturers will start to release um, the the tools, the diagnostics, the knowledge needed for independent mechanics to really get into the space as well. Well, John, we're just about out of time. I think we need to thank Maddie Stone for coming on the show and uh, go to this week, our Clean Tecker of the Week. Yeah, Clean Tecker of the Week this week is Robin Lane, the co-founder and CEO of renewable software company Transact. So through Transact, she has revolutionized clean energy workflows, providing developers with quick, informed site assessments. And under her leadership, Transact has made environmental due diligence accessible. So congratulations to Robin Lane. And uh, thanks to all of our listeners and uh, viewers for checking out this week's episode. We're going to be back next week with the last one of the year. And we thank Maddie Stone for coming on the show. John, happy holidays. Happy holidays, Mike. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the Interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.